couple of months ago, we started this uh, series that we've called Prayer on the Journey. That's in the what are called the Pilgrim Psalms. Inside the big book of Psalms in the Old Testament, which is 150 ancient songs, there's a smaller collection of 15 songs, Psalms 120 through to 134. And there are 15 songs that are called the Songs of Ascent or the Pilgrim Psalms, um, different titles for them, but they were most probably songs that were sung by pilgrims as they journeyed up to Jerusalem every year for the great festivals of Israel to worship God. And they, they were their songs and their prayers as they journeyed to meet and to worship with God year after year after year. And through the years of the church, they have become prayers and songs uh, for the journey of life. Um, the idea of that all of us are pilgrims in a pilgrimage, a journey through life. And, and these 15 psalms, these 15 prayers, have become prayers for the journey as we go through life. And we've gone through different ones of these, and today we're up to this one, which is called Prayer When You Need Forgiveness. When we kicked this um, series off a couple of months ago, I started off by dressing up like a pilgrim uh, on a journey and talked about the, the famous book, The Pilgrim's Progress written about 350 years ago by the, a man by the name of John Bunyan. Uh, Bunyan was imprisoned for his faith. It was Restoration England. Um, after the Civil War, English Civil War, King Charles II was brought back to the throne, and he reinstituted the state church, the Church of England. And anyone who wanted to be a pastor had to be a pastor within that church. And John Bunyan and many others were like me. They were pastors of independent churches. And they were told they either had to shut up or knuckle down and become Anglicans, Church of England pastors, or you know, they'd be thrown into prison. And many of them, like Bunyan, refused, and he got thrown into prison because he refused to stop preaching uh, without the official license that the government gave him. He languished in prison for over 20 years. And while he was here, he wrote a number of books, the most famous of which has become one of the best-selling books in the world called The Pilgrim's Progress. It tells the story of a man named Christian who recognizes that he is a sinner before God and recognizes that the world that he is part of and lives in is under God's judgment and wrath because of everyone's sin. And so he sets out on this journey that will take him ultimately at the very end of the book to heaven, which is called the Celestial City. And it's the story of his pilgrimage. But as he sets out on his journey... Uh, the description of him is, and this is one uh, artist's render, uh, rendering of this, he is dressed in rags, he is carrying a book in his hand, which uh, turns out to be the Bible, and on his back is this massive burden. It's the burden of his sin and his guilt before a holy God. And as he sets out on this journey to find God and to get to the celestial city to end up in heaven. He is carrying as he journeys this massive burden of his guilt and his sin before God and the sense of guilt and shame that goes with that. It's that same burden that Christian carries in John Bunyan's story that was also being carried by the author of the psalm that we're looking at today. So if you've got a Bible, whether it's a paper Bible or whether it's an app on your phone, either's fine, um, I want you to come with me to Psalm 130. This is the, the, the pilgrim psalm that we're up to today, and this is 
a psalm or a prayer when you need forgiveness. Because what's going to become apparent really quickly as we go through this little psalm together is that whoever this person is, and we don't know who wrote this psalm, it's anonymous, but this psalmist is just as burdened by their sin and guilt before a holy God as Christian is in the pilgrim's progress. And so this becomes a song or a prayer about what we do when we carry those kind of burdens, where we're weighed down by guilt and shame and sin of our own. Um, an older scholar who I think has now passed away, I probably should be careful of that in case he ever listens to the sermon and is still alive, but anyway, a wonderful Old Testament scholar by the name of Derek Kidner describing this psalm says, out of the depths, which is the opening words of it in verse 1, Uh, these opening words make a fitting title for the psalm because they describe the progress as well as the starting point of the prayer. In other words, it it begins in the out of the depths and it describes the journey that the psalm will take out of the depths. And he says, there is a steady climb towards assurance. I really love that. That's what the psalm is doing. It begins in the depth. So in verse 1, we will read the words, out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. I cry to you, Yahweh, which is God's name. That's where it begins. And it's the steady climb out as we go through the psalm until in the final stanza, we will read at the top there, with the Lord is unfailing love and full redemption. So it's kind of like we begin in the pit, if you like, and take the steady climb as we go through the psalm. If you have a look at it, if you've got it there uh, in front of you on your phone or in a Bible, you'll notice that there's eight verses in Psalm 130, and they're broken into four equal-sized paragraphs. So each stanza or each paragraph has got two verses in each, so it becomes this move of four steps in this steady climb that the psalmist is going to take. So we're just going to walk with the psalmist through these four steps, beginning in the depths and then moving up. So verses 1 and 2 is the first place we begin where the psalmist cries out to God from the depths of his sin. Have a look at it if you've got it there, verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths it says, I cry to you, Yahweh. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Psalms often use incredibly powerful imagery, and one of the favorite images in a number of psalms is the image of drowning or being caught in a flood. For the ancient Israelites, the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, which was one of their borders, was a scary place. Um, Later on, by the time we get to the New Testament, there are fishermen on the Sea of Galilee and so on, but the Mediterranean itself was a scary thing. There weren't a lot of swimmers or surfers in ancient Israel. The the waters freak them out. And so the imagery is often used through the Psalms of having waves bouncing over you and feeling like you're drowning and you're out of your depth and you don't know what to do. So, for example, Psalm 69 uses the similar imagery. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I'm worn out. Uh, Calling for help, my throat is parched. If you've ever swum at a New Zealand beach and got caught in a rip, you might have a sense of understanding what the psalmist is trying to say. I'm overwhelmed, I'm I'm engulfed, I'm crying out, and my voice is getting hoarse. In in the case of Psalm 69, he's using this imagery of, of almost feeling like he's drowning because of the way his opponents are attacking him. 
So later on in Psalm 69, it'll say, rescue me from the mire, do not let me sink, deliver me from those who hate me from the deep waters. Don't hide your face, answer me quickly, come near and rescue me, deliver me because of my foes. So Psalm 69 uses this imagery of drowning because of the opposition that he is up against. He feels like he's drowning against the opponents that are coming at him and the, the language they're using and the way they're defaming him and the way they're attacking him. In Psalm 130, it's using similar imagery. Out of the depths I cry to you, hear my voice, be attentive. But what we're going to see is in this psalm, he's not in the depths because of the way others are treating him. He's in the depths because of his own sin. Just drop your eyes down to verse 3. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? We'll go to the end of the psalm, verse 8. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. What this psalmist is wrestling with is not opponents coming at them, not external pressures. In this psalm, the depths to which he has sunk are the depths of his own sin. And as this psalmist wrestles with his guilt, before a holy God, he feels like he's drowning in the guilt and in the shame. But what he does in verses 1 and 2 is he cries out to God from these depths. He calls out to God. His big problem is sin. David, King David, who wrote many of the Psalms, not this one, but many of the others, understood this. One of King David's Psalms, Psalm 32 he wrote, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long because day and night your hand, God, was heavy on me and my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer and then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. And David knew what it was like to suffer under a guilty conscience. He knew what it was like to wrestle with a sense of guilt and shame before a holy God. And he says, I, I groaned. It felt like my bones were wasting away. It, it felt like my strength was being sapped. That sense of guilt. The problem for many of us is we come to a psalm like Psalm 32 or Psalm 130, is that somehow that, that sense of sin just isn't very real to us. Pastor James Boyce says our problem today, especially in appreciating a psalm like this, is that most of us do not have much awareness of sin. We live most of our lives with very little awareness of God. And those two things often go together. He says we need to recover a sense of sin. We need to discover how desperate our condition is apart from God. We need to know that God's wrath is not an outmoded theological construct, but it is a terrible and impending reality. This message goes against the grain of our world today. We don't like to talk about sin anymore. We don't like to think about ourselves as sinners. Most people living today prefer to think of themselves as pretty good. Not perfect, nobody's perfect, but, you know, I'm not doing too bad. Compared to the next guy, I'm okay. And that's how the, the, the way that so many people in our world choose to think of ourselves, and that seeps into our lives as well. Even within the church, we can very easily minimize sin and rebellion against God and think, I, actually, I'm not too bad. I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not as, maybe as good as I could be, but 
I'm certainly not as bad as I could be either. I'm not as bad as that person just down the row from me. And what this psalm challenges us is with this diagnosis that the Bible makes that all of us are burdened with sin. Not just tainted with it. It's just not a little bit of a problem. This is our problem. We are rebels against God. Evil lurks in the heart of every human being. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament put it this way, there is no one who is righteous. No, not one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God in and of themselves. All of us have turned away. Together we have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. We may think that we're pretty good, but the verdict of the Bible is that we're not. We are evil and sinful rebels against God. And the Bible makes that diagnosis of our problem very, very clear. And in this psalm, it's a diagnosis that the psalmist accepts. He recognizes that. That's why he recognizes that he is in the depths and he is burdened by his sin. He is troubled by his conscience. He's weighed down by his guilt and shame. And so because of that, he cries out to God. That's his first step up out of the pit. The second step then comes in verses 3 and 4. Have a look. If you've got your Bible there, verse 3 and 4. If you, Lord, or just God's name, Yahweh, they're in capital letters, if you, Yahweh, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. So the first step for the psalmist was to recognize that he was in the depths of, of sin and to cry out to God. And now the second step in verses 3 to 4 is that he trusts that God is going to be forgiving. He trusts that as he cries out to God, God will respond to his plea and will forgive him. Verse 3 is interesting. If you, Yahweh, kept a record of sins, who could stand? The irony of that verse is that when you jump to the very end of the Bible, the, the last book of the Bible called the book of Revelation that talks about the end of all things, the end of time, the end of the world, it talks about a great judgment before God at the great white throne. In Revelation 20 says, I saw a great white throne and God seated on it and then I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, all of humanity before God. And look at what it says. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. So on one side you've got all of these books which are exactly what the psalmist says I hope doesn't happen the record of everything that we've done. And on the other side is the book of life. And it says, and I've put it in italics here for emphasis, the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, the dead and death, and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. The psalmist here in Psalm 130 says, if you, Yahweh, kept a record of sins, who could stand? without knowing that later on it would be revealed in the Bible, oh, it's exactly what God's got. Everything I have ever done wrong, every word that I've ever said, 
every thought I have ever had, everything I should have done and failed to do, all written before a holy God. And one day, I will stand with the rest of humanity and my name will be called and my book will be opened. And I'm really gutted that my name is at the beginning of the alphabet. (laughs) Because it's all there. And as the psalmist says here in verse 3, who, who can stand under that? How many of us are confident to stand before a holy God when the books are open and go, yep, I'll be fine? But this is what I love about the Bible. Often, in key moments in the Bible, you come across a little three-letter word. But... And that's what's at the heart of verses 3 and 4. If you, Yahweh, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But, verse 4, with you, there is forgiveness. In other words, what the psalmist says is, if there's a record somewhere, then we're in big trouble. But I'm trusting that you are a forgiving God. And he says that because that's the way that God reveals himself all the way through the Bible. For example, in the prophecies of Isaiah, God will say, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. He blots them out. When the people come to God and ask for forgiveness from him, he takes the book and he blots it all out. He covers it all up. He he uses those sensor markers to wipe it all. There's nothing there. In the words of David in Psalm 103, he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. As high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how great his love is for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he's removed our transgressions. And so on one hand, the Bible makes this huge diagnosis that all of us are sinners. None of us are good. We're all under God's wrath. Everything, every word, every deed, every thought has been written. But on the other side, the good news is that God is a forgiving God. He is a gracious God, and that's what the psalmist chooses chooses to trust in. But with you, he says, there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. I've come back to this passage time and time again through this series in prayer, but this is the way that God chooses to describe himself, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. So many people think the Old Testament, God is grumpy and angry and mad, and then in the New Testament, Jesus comes and suddenly God is loving. That is not how it works. Jesus talks about judgment more than anyone else does, as well as God's love. And in the Old Testament, God is a God of love and grace and compassion and forgiveness, as well as anger and judgment and wrath. All of those things are true of him. But when God has the chance to 
reveal who he is and explain what he is like. This is the way he describes himself in the book of Exodus. And this gets repeated time and time again through the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord. In other words, this is who I am, God says. I am the compassionate God. I am the gracious God. I am the slow to anger God. I am the overflowing in love God. I am the abounding in faithfulness God. I am the God who maintains love to thousands and forgives wickedness, even though I will not leave the guilty unpunished. I will see justice is done. God says, this is who I am. And that is what this psalmist is banking on. I'm in the depths, God. I feel weighed down by my sin, God. The guilt and the shame when I think about some of the stupid mistakes I've made in my life get me so down, but I'm banking God that this is true, that you are a forgiving and gracious God. And that's exactly what this psalm is about. We're only halfway through, but that's the big idea that comes screaming through already, that God is a gracious and forgiving God. That is who he is. And this psalmist, as he wallows in the pit of his own sin, as he comes face to face with his own guilt, as he's weighed down with this burden of sin and shame and guilt, very quickly realizes that God is gracious and God is forgiving. And I'm trusting in that, he says. I'm banking on God being that kind of God. That's what Psalm 130 celebrates. So the first step out of the pit is that he cries out to God for forgiveness because of his sin. And then he trusts that God will be forgiving. He trusts that God will be true to what he said. But actually, that's not all he's after. Because then you come to verses 5 and 6. And this tells us that for this psalmist, it's not just enough to be forgiven. He doesn't only want his sin dealt with. He doesn't only want forgiveness. He wants something much more. Look at verse 5. He says, I wait for Yahweh. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. Yes, more than watchmen wait for the morning. The imagery he's using is of the guards standing on the walls of probably Jerusalem or another fortified city. They've been on guard. They've got the night shift. And they are on guard all the way through the long night. Often in that land, it gets hot in the day but cold at the night. And they're stamping around and walking the battlements and keeping an eye out and protecting the city. And they're just waiting. What are they waiting for? They're waiting for the sun to rise. They are looking every now and then as they march around and try and keep warm. They look out to the east to see if there's just a, a sniff of light, just to see if the sun has just started to break through yet, if that pre-dawn light has just begun. They know it's coming. They know it's going to end up coming. But they're just hanging out for the dawn to come, for the light to shine. And the psalmist says, that's what I'm like. What is he waiting for here? 
Many people think he's waiting for forgiveness, but he's already claimed that, hasn't he? He's already celebrated that in verses three and four. He's already trusting that God's forgiven him because God's a gracious God. What is he waiting for? He's waiting for the Lord. And what he's saying is, I want you, God. I want forgiveness, but I want more than just forgiveness. I want a renewed relationship with you. Life is about you. John Piper, American pastor, says the gospel is God. The good news is that we get to have a relationship with our creator. And this psalmist is saying, I'm after forgiveness and I'm thankful that you're a forgiving God and I'm claiming that, but I want more than just forgiveness. I want forgiveness so that I can have a renewed relationship with you, God. I'm waiting for you. I want that sense of fellowship and relationship restored again, and I know it's coming as sure as the sun is going to rise. And like those watchmen, those guards on the wall, I'm just hanging out and waiting for you. David expressed something very similar in another psalm, Psalm 143. This is David's words, a psalm of David. He says, I spread out my hands to you and I thirst for you in a parched land. Answer me quickly, Yahweh, my spirit fails. Don't hide your face from me or I will be like those who do go down to the pit. Let the morning, he says, bring me word of your unfailing love for I put my trust in you. So it's a very similar idea. David is saying, I'm trusting you, God. I'm crying out to you, but I am thirsty for you. I want you. I want to have a renewed and close relationship with you. It's great to be forgiven, but we're forgiven so that we can walk with God. And David in this psalm and the psalmist here in Psalm 130 is expressing this deep longing for God. I want to know you, God. I want to walk with you, God. I want that sense of renewed relationship with you that I was made to have. Final step then. He cries out to God from the depths, asking for forgiveness. He says, I trust that you have forgiven me because you are a gracious and forgiving God. And God, I'm waiting because I want to have a sense of, of coming back to you, of being close to you again. And then finally, he turns to Israel. Oh, that's popped down a bit. And he addresses the nation of Israel in verses 7 and 8. And in this, he's saying, I'm looking forward to one day God sorting this whole sin problem once and for all. Look at what he says in verses 7 and 8. Israel, put your hope in Yahweh. For with Yahweh, there is unfailing love. And with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. There's two key phrases that I don't want you to miss in this final little stanza. As he celebrates the fact that the God he cries out to has forgiven him and he says, I'm, I'm wanting to have this new relationship with you. He says, and I'm looking forward to the day where this whole sin issue is going to be taken care of once and for all. Bring it on, he says. And in the middle of that, that final climactic statement, that last step up out of the pit, there's two phrases that are incredibly key. The first one is in verse 7. In the second line of verse 7, put your hope in Yahweh, Israel, for with Yahweh is unfailing love. Just put a circle around those two words. 
unfailing love. In our English Bible, it's two words. In the original Hebrew language, the Old Testament was written, and it's one word. It is the Hebrew word chesed. I love this word. You've got to get a really big hoik in your mouth to say it properly. It is chesed. Chesed is God's incredible love for his people. A number of theologians say that out of all of the attributes of God, in the Old Testament, this is the attribute that is celebrated most. God is the God of chesed. He is the God, the way it's translated, I love the way the NIV translates it, he is the God of unfailing love. What it's describing is God's love that can't be bought, that can't be earned, that can never be merited. God dispenses his chesed, not on people who deserve it, but he gives his chesed to people who don't, but who simply come to him and ask. More than 250 times the Old Testament celebrates this beautiful attribute of God. One older scholar, Walt Kaiser, says, redemption from sin rests not in our works, but simply and solely in God's unfailing love. Don't, don't go rushing past that first sentence. Redemption and forgiveness of sin does not rest in what you or I do. It rests solely in God's chesed, his unfailing love. Kaiser goes on, the word chesed is one of the most beautiful words found in the Old Testament. Few of any English words, he says, can accurately mine the riches found in this word. It could be translated grace, mercy, loving kindness, loyal love, unfailing love. But every one of these concepts, he says, stress that everything depends on the unmerited favor of God. That's what underlines this word. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. We cannot merit it. We cannot earn it. We cannot buy it. We can't do anything to earn God's grace and mercy and unfailing love. But that's what he offers freely. And that's why the psalmist here turns around, having climbed out of the pit, he turns to his fellow Israelites and says, put your hope in this God, because he's the God of unfailing love. He's the God who chooses to love the unlovable, not because there's anything of value in us, but because he chooses to love us, because that's who he is. Second phrase is in verse 8. Second key phrase in this final stanza. Just look at it if you've got your Bible open. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Key phrases, those two first words. He himself. He himself. What the psalmist is saying is one day, looking into the future from where he was standing, one day God himself is going to redeem Israel from all of their sins. 
He says, one day God himself is going to deliver us from slavery to sin. One day God himself is going to take care of the sin problem once and for all. I don't know if the psalmist knew how he was going to do it. There's nothing here that suggests that he had it all worked out and knew what the plan of God was. But all he does is he plants a signpost at the end of his prayer that points to the future and says, one day, and I don't know exactly how, he himself, God himself, is going to deal with our sin problem once and for all. Let's put our hope in that. You and I stand way down the timeline from that signpost. And we have the privilege of seeing exactly where that signpost pointed. Pointed to a manger. And it pointed to a cross. Because when the psalmist says he himself will redeem you one day, future tense, he was pointing to the time when God himself would become a man in the person of Jesus. And he would come to redeem us, to set us free, to pay the ransom. Jesus steps onto the scene and in Mark 10 says, the son of man, which is himself, says, I haven't come to be served like a king. I've come to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. We would be redeemed by the God, he himself becoming one of us and dying for us and for our sins. The Apostle Peter in the New Testament will say, you know, it was not with perishable things like silver and gold. It wasn't with money that we were redeemed from this empty way of life. We were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. How? Paul puts it these ways, this, this way in the New Testament. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's what I call the beautiful exchange that happens at the cross. God took all of our sin, all of our failure, all of our rebellion, every mistake written in our book, and he placed all of that on Jesus, on the cross. And Jesus paid the penalty for every thought, every word, every deed, we've ever done wrong. And in this remarkable exchange, as we give him all of our sin, what we get given and returned is his righteousness, his perfection, his holiness, so that we now stand before God, not as sinners, not with a burden, we stand before God and God sees us as perfect and holy because of this exchange at the cross. See, this is the story of the Bible. God is a gracious and forgiving God. And through Jesus, he has dealt with sin once and for all. God has always been this gracious and forgiving God. That's what the psalm says. 
But the psalm says one day he himself is going to fully and finally redeem us from our sin. And that is exactly what Jesus came to do. And through his death and resurrection, he has dealt with our sin once and for all. In the Pilgrim's Progress, Christian heads out on this journey towards the celestial city, wanting to find God and find eternal life. And early in the book, as he carries this great burden of his sin, he comes to a highway that is fenced on both sides that leads up a hill. And at the top of the hill is a cross. This is just as he got to the cross, Bunyan writes, his burden came loose, dropping from his shoulders, and it went tumbling down the hill. It fell into an open grave, and the narrator says, and I saw it no more. Christian stood gazing at the cross, wondering how the sight of the cross could so relieve one of guilt and shame. He no longer felt guilty of anything. His conscience told him that all his sins were forgiven. He now felt innocent and clean and happy and free. He knew his sins had all been paid for by the death of the one who died on the cross. They were gone, buried in the Saviour's tomb, and God would remember them against him no more forever. That's what Psalm 130 was pointing towards. The plan of a gracious and forgiving God who was planning he himself to fix our sin once and for all. And we stand on the other side of that cross knowing that through Jesus it's done it. And whatever burdens we carry, whatever guilt, whatever shame we carry through life can go. It can fall away at the foot of the cross. Psalm 130 is for all of us. All of us are sinners. All of us have this diagnosis against us. And I think all of us at some level carry some sense of guilt and shame and acknowledgement, whether we realize it or not, all of us need this prayer, this psalm. But there's two groups of people that I think really need to hear Psalm 130 today. The first group is those of you sitting here today who have never trusted in Jesus for yourself. There may be some of you here that are just checking out this faith thing and kicking the tires and trying to work out if this is true or not. This is the Christian message. This is the good news of the Bible. God is a gracious and forgiving God. And he offers to forgive your sin and offers to have a relationship with you now that lasts forever. And you can't earn it. You can't merit it. You can't work your way there. It's simply a gift that he offers in his chesed, in his grace. All you do, all you have to do, is accept his free gift of life and forgiveness and relationship. 
If you've never done that before, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. I just want to pray a really simple prayer. I want to just ask all of you to just bow your heads for a minute. And I just want to pray this prayer. And if you've never trusted in Jesus and you would like to do that today, I want to simply invite you to pray this prayer quietly in the quietness of your heart after me. Dear God, I now realize that I am a sinner. Everything written down before you. And suddenly I feel the weight of this burden. But I want it to go. So I acknowledge, confess my sin to you. And I ask you that Jesus would take that sin away as I trust in him as my saviour. Thank you that simply by accepting this gift, I am forgiven and I am free. I give you my life today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer today, understand it's actually not the prayer that saves you, it's simply the faith in your heart. But if you've prayed that, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service and just come and grab me. Second group of people really quickly that I think this psalm speaks to are those of you who have trusted in Jesus but are still carrying a burden. It may be a weight of shame and guilt about something in your past that you just have never been able to move past. It may be a sense of guilt and shame over a struggle with sin that you've currently got. It may just be this dull ache, this sense that you will never measure up to a holy God. I don't know what it may be for you. But I just want you to hear today, Jesus paid for it all. That's what Psalm 130 celebrates when it says, with him is full redemption. And if you've trusted in Jesus, you don't need to carry any burden anymore. It's time to lay it down and let it go at the cross. So I want to pray another prayer. And if you have walked in here today burdened by your sin, as a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you that when I trusted in you, you forgave me. But I confess today, I don't feel forgiven. I still carry the burden of my guilt and shame.
but I believe today I don't need to. Would you help me really trust you that all of my sin, that all of my guilt, that all of my shame was borne by you? Please help me not to believe the lie anymore. Help me to trust that I really am forgiven in you. In your name. Amen. This morning as we finish off our service, we want to celebrate forgiveness. We want to celebrate redemption. We want to celebrate the fact that in Jesus, God has taken care of our sin and our guilt and our shame once and for all. And we want to celebrate that by taking communion. But we want to do something to reenact this beautiful exchange. So on your chairs is a stone. You may have put it on the ground, had a couple of people drop them, that's okay. You might have been sitting really uncomfortably, realizing, not realizing you were sitting on a stone. I just want you to pick your stone up as the band comes back up onto the stage. I want you to hold it in your hand for just a minute. I want you to feel the weight of one stone. And then imagine a bag of these, like the bags that I picked up from the store yesterday. The more of these you add into a bag, the heavier it gets, and it doesn't take many. And then imagine a massive burden on your back of sin. I want you to allow this stone in your hand to represent your burden. It's actually Sharpies underneath the seats and the aisles, on both sides and in the middle. So if you're in an aisle seat, I want to invite you to reach down and grab a Sharpie. What I want to invite you to do, if you'd like to, is just pass that along to people along the row. I want to invite you to use this to personalize this to represent your sin. If there are some particular sins that you feel guilty about, I want to invite you to, if you're brave enough, to write that with the Sharpie on the stone. If there's some particular struggles that you've found hard to give up, I want to invite you to write it on the stone. There is a sin that you are incredibly grateful that God has taken care of for you. I want to invite you to write it on the stone. If you're scared about what the person sitting next to you is going to think, if they see your stone, you're welcome just to write sin or whatever you want to write. If you don't want to write anything, that's fine as well. The band's going to lead us up in a few songs. And I'm going to invite you to come and take communion. I want to try and make this a time to really reflect. So I want to give you time. We've got two songs that are long. And we have four communion tables today. Two at the front, two down the back on the sides. So take your time. But as you come to take communion today, what I want you to do is I want you to bring your stone, representing your sin. And on each of these tables is a tray. I want to invite you to come and lay down your sin. And if you want to take a moment, if you want to pray, that's 
what we've got time for today, but I want to invite you to come and lay your sin down. And then with hands that are finally free, I want you to take the bread and the juice. Symbols of what Jesus has done for you and I. And I want you to take communion today and remember your Savior and celebrate. The burden is gone. Our gracious and loving God has dealt with all of our sin once and for all. Jesus. Take your time. Come when you're ready. But I want to invite you to come.